You're listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast presented by Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. On this program, we invite poets from all over the world to join us for a one-on-one conversation about their poetry, their craft, and what poetry means to them. From how poetry played out in childhood to its current practice, it's all about the poet and the poem and what's really happening behind the words. Here in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we produce this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today on the show, Raina Leon joins Miriam. Raina Leon is a black and Afro-Boricua Philadelphian. She is a mother, daughter, sister, madrina, comadre, partner, poet, writer, and teacher educator. She believes in collective action and community work, the profound power of holding space for the telling of our stories, and the liberatory practice of humanizing education. She is the author of three collections of poetry, Canticle of Idols, Boogeyman Dawn, and Sombra Dislocate, and the chapbooks Profeta Without Refuge and Naureto Tuatabe Essays on the Mothering Self. Her poetry, non-fiction, fiction, and scholarly work has been published in well over 100 journals and anthologies. Please welcome Reina Leon. Without my glasses, all the world becomes Monet, a fine pierced window in the Hararat's dome. Its pointed star to conjure a summer night softens to pulsing circle that enchants the steam to hiss and rise. On the hot marble, my glasses lie useless. The first wave of heat enough to fog me near blind, so even my eyes are naked. I simulate delicate decorum. Soon I am near splayed as the sweat forms rivulets running down all this reddening earth. My forehead hosts liquid pebbles. I turn and press to gray marble, smoothed by the skin of generations. The small becomes a newly formed lake. Tiger marks stretch at my hips for the first time. I am not ashamed of patterns. I am surrounded by taut and hang girls in their play and crones whose bodies have glowed, carried, burst, mourned. My breasts are among many breasts. We are a tribe of sweat. The attendant calls for me over, calls me over for my turn of lemon scented suds and the raw scrape of loofah mitts until the dead flakes crust in rolled balls of dirt. She washes them away with vigorous hand over and over again. I have never been touched this way by a woman, intimate and rough in the cleansing. I am steeped in citrus spray from head to toe. She pulls my hair as she washes, then leads me to the founts, fills a metal bowl with cold clean. She sets to her ruthless work, erasing the frizzle of soap. She points the way back to the dark pool, the heated waters where nymphs were descending. I dangle my feet a while. Those bathing look hungry for flesh. The slab receives my meditation again, pulsing stars in a cloudstone dome. 
the scent of lemon and musk, heated air so thick as to swim. When the salty slick returns, I feel out shining bowl and the frigid feel the silk that stretches across muscle and bone. So tell me about you. Tell me who you are. Um, so I am Raina Leon. <laughs> you know who I am. Um, today's been actually a really packed day and connecting to my different identities. So I am a professor of education over at St. Mary's College and um, I'm on parental leave, as you know, with my, um, my daughter. Um, but I can't stop teaching. So <laughs> I really love teaching. And I've taught pretty much every grade level, um, K-12, uh, in different contexts, as well as collegiate, graduate students, um, in arts education programs. I've taught adjudicated youth. I've taught elders. I've taught everybody <laughs> in one instance or another. And so I had a class today, which was very focused on um, liberation stories. Um, and that is a class where I give prompts every day for a month. And so it's an accountability class and we have um, co-learning partners and folks checking in on one another to really write every day. So that's one aspect of me as a creative coach and writer, as well as an educator. And that followed me being on a panel today um, for the Speculative Literature Foundation, talking about um, how to, uh, achieve to apply for and get grants and residencies um, and so I am a writer um, who writes around um, speculative fiction as well as poetry as well as essays and different aspects come through in those different spaces so essays right now I'm very concerned around revolutionary mothering and um, mothering as a, as a black person as Afro-Latina Afro-Boricua and then, you know, around family history. And then this fiction work that I'm doing right now is um, around also blackness and black feminism and um, living at the intersection of, of identity and connection with the natural world. So exploring eco-poetics, exploring our space um, and our intimate relationship with um, natu the natural world as a part of, not as separate. Um, and, in that I'm talking a lot about black immortals, I'm talking about vampires, like, and how they live forever, right? And then as a poet, I talk a lot around um, family history, but also um, societal um, ills and changes and connections and community in all is like really the unifying thread within my work, within my practice as an editor too, with the Essentials Review and Raising Mothers. The Santos Review is a journal um, that fosters um, the work of Latinx writers and artists. And we've been in existence for 12 years now, having published like 800, um, over 800 Latinx voices. And then Raising Mothers is another journal that I'm a part of, which focuses on femme and non-binary parents um, of color. So yeah, I do a lot. And like, that's 
that's my like five minutes to feel my, my CV is like massive. <laughs> I saw your CV. I've never seen a CV like this. I was just telling my husband and I, and I wanted to ask you and I, I'll come to my initial first questions later, yeah. <laughs> but I want to ask you, I mean, that is one hell of a CV. <laughs> now, I just want to know, have you always had this focus since you were young and like my first question to poets really is how did poetry play in your childhood yeah so we can start there but also was your vision so strong I mean you you said yeah I'm a planner with backup plans from a backup plans for sure um but I poetry um I came to me I came to it um we entangled together (laughs) um as when I was really a child, like I started writing my first, uh, started writing poetry and fiction when I was eight. I remember my first poem. It was in my third grade class with Mrs. Mazuka. We did the diamante form. <laughs> I still have it somewhere because I'm a hoarder. I keep everything, so I know it's still here. Um, and um, so I give a lot of credit to Mrs. Mazuka of like introducing me um, to especially poetic form, which has been a really huge concern for me. Um, a lot of my, my work focuses on form. Um, and, but my mom is a poet. And so she could see that I needed the, the outlet that writing provided, whether poetry or fiction. And I remember writing, I, I really identified more as a fiction writer early on when I was a child. And I would write these very, very sad stories, sad, sad stories. And I would give them to my mom and I'd ask her to read them. And she'd read them very carefully. And then she'd say, oh, this is wonderful, Raina. But why are they so sad? And I didn't have the language or the capacity to like really just say to my mom at that time, mommy, it's it's because I'm sad. Like, (laughs) I am very sad. There's a lot of shit going on. (laughs) Um, And I hope that it's okay that I use the the full breadth of my language, expletives included every now and then. Everything's okay. Awesome. Um, but yeah, the, um, there was a lot of like familial drama, um, going on a lot of things that, um, uh, were traumatic as a young person. Um, and my way of, of coping and figuring my way out, um, through that was around writing. Um, and there were also these like complexities around, um, identity. So, being Afro-Boricua and like, what does it mean to be woman within my family and the layers of colorism and racism and um, the dynamics of gender and misogyny within my own family. Um, that definitely had a huge impact on me growing up and my way of making sense of it um, and figuring my way through to, to a place of, of ongoing and and full journey healing which is not complete it is definitely a journey was through writing um i hope that answers your question it does and so you remember that first poem yeah do you do you remember understanding that it was a poem like so you said you wrote fiction how did you understand the difference and and how did that feel inside yeah um so I remember definitely like here is a poem, here is fiction. With the world of fiction, I was doing a lot of, of fantasy writing, um, writing into a world that was not mine um, and dreaming into something else, uh, which I think is also something that I'm, I'm growing into of, of, of um, 
being of honoring what the dream is because it is the potential for reality. It is the thread into the making of something. You have to start with the dream. Um, and so I understood then the difference between fiction um, and poem and that the poem held more um, immediate language for that was pulsing with emotion, was pulsing with um, sense. And it didn't necessarily have to be linked to like a narrative structure or the sentence structure that it could live as its own in the purity of its language and, and maneuvering that. Like I understood that even then. Um, and I know that because I have always been a journal writer and I, and as I said, I'm a hoarder. So I keep all, especially around papers and books. Um, so I have all of these journals from, my entire life since I was eight. I've only ever lost and they were devastating like two journals. Um, uh, but like being able to look back and be like, oh, I was so concerned with the boys <laughs> for such a long time. <laughs> or I was so like concerned with the external world looking at me rather the reflective space of like, what was I doing? And what, uh, who is this being becoming? Um, so, or tracking to the, to the point of even minutes at points in my journaling of like, how long it took me to walk to this place or where was I going? I'm, I'm, I'm very analytically um, uh, driven sometimes. Um, so my journals of my youth are really more um, like one line reflections, but looking back of being like, okay, there's a very clear understanding of what is what. even as a child and your mm -hmm. mom's a poet and then take me through your teenage years how uh, poetry played out for you oh yeah that's fun um so i i didn't really identify i identified as a writer right and i had submitted some poems as a kid to like vanity press stuff and and there was a point of pride to like have my work in an anthology and so on um, but I didn't really identify so much as a poet per se, like just as a, as a writer across different um, spaces until, not until I was in college actually, but in high school, I had a friend, um, Sarah Jane Rice. I remember Sarah Jane Rice. We, we every now and then connect on Facebook. Um, and she and I would pass poems back and forth in school and high school. Um, and I remember Mr. Barilla, he was my 11th grade teacher um, English teacher, and we were learning about Chaucer and Shakespeare, and he was the first person to challenge me around, um, or he created an assignment, and you could do it however you wanted, and I, and I decided to write um, a series of sonnets, um, and it was the first time that I'd really, like, immersed myself in, like, studying a very um, structured form, more so than the Diamante. Um, actually, I'm seeing so many connections as I'm talking to you, um, but, like, really focusing on the iambic pentameter really deeply, um, studying metrics. Um, and, and I was like so proud to like pass them on. I don't know if he ever paid much attention to it. It seemed like it was a, 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 something that I, I got um, positive affirmation for. Um, but I you know, wasn't really, um, I was sending things out, but not necessarily saying I am a poet. 
it wasn't until college when I competed in a slam and I won and I won like $50. And I don't know what it was about like the money. The money was the thing. <laughs> it was like, stamp, I'm a poet now. <laughs> oh yeah, um, you've been paid. <laughs> I've been paid. Like how many of us poets never get paid? <laughs> So that was, you know, I, I remember that and I remember getting, um, I had a poem accepted to a journal. I don't even know if it exists anymore. It was called Anti-Muse and I got paid $8 for my poem. And, you know, those moments of, of getting a check was like, oh, okay, like this is viable. I can't pay any bills, but I might be able to buy a burger like, <laughs> or another book, right? Um, so yeah, that, that journey of, um, of uh award or affirmation in some way that was also connected to my survival um and yeah i took a, a number of different classes ah there was the other this other thing so another story in that when i was in college i was very very broke um i had a scholarship the scholarship um also provided living expenses and without that i would have been very hungry um and one year my senior year i had um i'd gotten down to like pennies in my account right and for some odd reason i thought that having a snickers bar a half a bar a day would be healthy so that's what i did that's about what i could afford now why didn't i buy ramen like that that would have been far healthier than what i did but that's what i was doing and i was telling this story to a friend while i'm watching library van cleese stefan and um she came to campus and did this reading and I was just so moved. I went up to her and I was like, I wish I could buy your book, but I have no money. And this has been so shaping and so important to me. And she gave me her book. And like, imagine the scene. It's raining, it's pouring. I don't have an umbrella. I gotta walk like a mile back to my house. And I'm walking through the rain with my Raven Cleese Black Swan, that's the book, underneath my, my little jacket and carrying this thing like it's the most i'm crying in the rain i'm crying now I finally can't. being seen it, it's a it's a, a massive scene it's a really important scene and she was giving a craft talk and i never miss class i'm a, I'm, I'm an overachiever i got four graduate degrees like i, ch I check a lot of boxes right I'm, a, I'm an overachiever that's my life story and i miss class to go to her craft workshop and she was talking about the importance of cave Canem and the the application was due soon like maybe within a week and i applied because she mentioned it and i got waitlisted and then um uh the story from there is i had part of the reason i was so broke was because my my dad retired and my mom turned 50 and i used any money that i had to pay for my dad and i had to go to puerto rico and for my mom and i had to go to to europe so um for three weeks so like I, every penny was going towards those two things. Um, and uh, when we were in Greece, the last few days, um, my mom and I were overseas and we did three weeks on $2,000 with two people, including airfare. Like <laughs> I got everything together um, for us to go. It was my mom's first time really out of the country. Um, anyway, we were there and I got the notice that they had a spot open for Cave Canem and I begged and I borrowed that $500 to get there. And that changed everything for me. That changed everything. Uh, I met people who were in New York. I was moving to New York, got connected. That's how I got connected with the Essentials Review, was going to a bar, 
bar 13 and reading a poem that I had workshopped at Cave Canem, and that's how I got my first feature. Um, and that's how I got connected with the Essentials Review. Like all these things happened from that book that Lyrae Van Cleef Stefan gave me and that I walked through the ring. That's how, that's how it all happened. Oh, I love it. But it is that, isn't it? It's, yeah. and you, I mean, I like the way you talk about form and I want to talk to you about that because in yeah. reading your poems, I can see how form is a big part of your poetry. It's not for everyone, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. not for everyone. And, I, and, it, and even these stories show that they're not, it's not a chronology because nothing yeah. is linear, but there is form, you know, yeah. and there is something that is carrying you through and each step of the way. And so mm-hmm. tell me about form in poetry and why it's important to you. Yeah. So I, and I, I, I keep like mentioning these names of these incredible people because I, I want to pay homage to them as part of my journey. Right. Um, so Robin Becker was a, uh, is a formalist and I encountered her at Penn State. I think she's still there. Um, she had a class on poetic form. It was my first like formal poet, poetry class. Um, and she was very strict about it. <laughs> um, and I even did activities. Um, she gave us a prompt once of um, taking, studying the, a poem of a, um, of, from a book. I think it was Marie Howe that I, I a, a poem of hers that I was looking at, but down to the to the metrics of it, to the parts of speech of the sentence, um, of the lines, and to um, write in those boxes. And it was so hard, but I like a puzzle, so I spent like so much time doing this very short poem, um, and it was actually one of my first publications, and and like that attention to the form. Um, was really instructive. So then um, my, my focus on form was, um, was um, elevated even more um, or centered even more through uh, Marilyn Nelson, who's a, an incredible formalist. She was a poet laureate of Connecticut. She has incredible books like uh, Read for Bet- Emmett Till. Um, she was one of the instructors over at Cave Canem. I want to say it was my first year and talked about how form can be the vessel for um, the vibrant explosions of, of emotion. When you cannot, when you feel like you can't touch it, like you can't write whatever it is, sometimes form can be the container for the fireball, right? Um, and, and that was so instructive for me of like whatever the riotous things that are happening within the body, within my mind, within my spirit, that. I can explore the form and that can be a container. And if the container is not working to hold it or, or shape it correctly, I just need to ch- change the container. And I can think through what the, what the right container is. Sometimes I have to make its own container. <laughs> I have to make the form, but um, there is something that will, will serve that will be the vehicle for um, whatever that theme, that, that narrative, that emotion, that, magic making portal quality of language is, I can figure that out. Um, And so that like um, obsession with form kind of started with those two folks. And it's definitely been something that I always come back to now that I teach and I coach and everything um, for folks who are writing their manuscripts or starting um, to to write um, of like, 
here is the form that you wrote because that's what you're used to. Like, you know, we're familiar with something that's less linear, um, um, less justified, very um, lineated that way. But what happens if you explode it? What happens if it's a prose poem? What happens if you change the whole thing and repeat some of the lines and it's a pantoum? What happens if it's like all the things? What happens if it's layered over a photograph? What happens? Um, and, and that kind of question of like, um, is this the right vehicle for it? Is this the right um, path for it? Um, you're in partnership for the, with, with the poem. You're not just the creator of the poem, right? Like the poem has its own thing. Um, yeah, I, obviously I get really excited. <laughs> oh my God, so do I. I just love that. So do you think that when, if you were like, poets are listening to this or yeah. people that want to write a poem, should they have that in mind before they start? Or no, no. I, I think, I, I think, yes. So there are two different approaches, right? Uh, when you know that, like, I, I want to write this thing and I can't get close to it. It's just, it, it hurts too much or it's too prickly. Then, then I think that's actually a good thing to say, I'm just going to try it as a sonnet or because it's focused on a love, even if it, there's a grief in the love, or I'm going to try it as this um, or as a list poem as, where the same thing is repeated over and over and over again, which can be a prayer. It can be an intonation. It can be an ode, right? Um, and it can be a morning, right? There's so much that can happen, even just in repetition, um, over and over in a list poem. Um, and then from there, you might say, well, now I've gotten it all out, and this, this container is not the right one. I can shape it now. I can do my editing work. Um, so there's that approach when you're like, I can't even touch it yet, and maybe if I have a container that will help me. I got to put something around my hands, around my mind to get to it, right? Um, good oven mitts. <laughs> I guess the poetic form as oven mitts. I don't know. Yeah, I love it. Um, but the other side of that is like um, when there's just so much energy in you of like whatever it is is bursting and get out. I think for me, the best thing is to just get it out, is to write it through and then shape it from there. Um, because uh, what that thing is has told me your form does not matter right now. Like just get me on the page. And from then I'll show you what I, what needs to happen. So, yeah. And how do you know when a poem is, hello. <laughs> yeah, I've got a toddler running around. Hello. hello. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you know when it's finished? How do you know when it's finished? There are poems that I still edit and they're in my books. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. For sure. And then there are poems that like, I wrote it in one draft and I never touched it again and I feel good about it. Mm. Um, so your question about how do you know if it's finished? I think for me, a part of my process, my editing process is actually reading it aloud and re doing those new poems at readings. So I'm, I'm pretty transparent in my, in my process. Um, and before I even submit a manuscript of work, I've definitely read most, if not all of the, of the poems at different readings and gotten feedback. So part of my, my editing process is being in connection with audience and reading the cues, how people are connecting with my work, um, as I can understand that, right? Um, 
And when I get to the point where I'm like, actually this, where it is right now, is having the effect that I want it to have on the audience as well as on me. Um, that's, I think, when I know that it's done. Um, you know, there are poems in like Boogeyman Dawn, which I sent you, um, that I wrote that have not really been edited and yet still have a similar effect on me. And I feel like they have the same connective effect with my audience as, as I intended as, um, as it was written originally. Um, so that I think is the, is the indicator of, of doneness for me. who it was within my community but someone was like you don't stay in one mode or one voice ever and I'm because my first book is very different from Boogeyman Dawn um, and my chat books that have come since are also very different formally they're different in their focuses um, Boogeyman Dawn answers the question of uh, the questions of what happens when the sun rises to the boogeyman does the boogeyman retreat into the darkness the shadows or um, the external shadows? Does the boogeyman retreat into the shadows within us? And I think that the answer is that the boogeyman is within us. And so it's very focused of, um, around education, around children, around holding space for them and the, when we don't as a community, as a society. Um, and that definitely comes from my work at the time um, supporting adjudicated youth and as like a, a growing educator as someone who was studying um, educational practice as well at the time um, and constantly still but in my PhD process. Sombra, um, this locate is definitely um, this longing for um, uh, a home place in no place. Um, so it explores blackness in place um, and, uh, and that is a place, like a physical place, but also a place of identity. Um, and so that one is very, um, connected, I think, to the, to questions that I was raising in my, um, academic journey, as well as in my, um, um, social identity and location of, like, where is a place that I can be safe? Where is a place for Black people to be safe? Um, and it actually started more as an exploration of the Black expat experience. I've been obsessed with Josephine Baker, for example, for um, decades. Um, there's there's a, a movie called the Josephine Baker Story, and it used to play on channel, it was either channel 17 or channel 57 in Philadelphia, like every year around like the same season, and I would watch it every single year. I love that movie um, because it also fostered in me a uh, idea of like, yes, there's struggle around blackness, about, around, um, around um, gender identity, and, um, and there are these other opportunities to be free, to live however free that means to you. And for her, that was France, it was Paris. Um, and there's actually this really, um, Sombra, um, I found this really great um, interview, really small interview, um, between her and James Baldwin, um, where, yeah, yeah, because of course they're both expats in, in France. Yes. Uh, 
And so important to have, I think it was Henry Louis Gates, I'm pretty sure it was, that, um, that uh, was the moderator for that conversation. And like, how fruitful is that to like have these two folks incredibly in, engaged in, um, in political work and, and activism and exploration of um, identity and human rights, not just civil rights, but human rights. Um, and to do so um, in a space where they found a, a kind of freedom, right? Anyway, I'm, I'm like going off tangents, right? That's like, fine. I love but it. Yeah, the books are very different. <laughs> what are the themes that you think are you in your poetry? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely um, very concerned or, or focused on... Um, children and the community wrapping around to support them. And um, community, as I said, is a, a really big unifying, it's a, it's a bridge throughout all my work, whether it's in relationship to family and the, um, the gelling as well as the disruptions in family um, and the hurts and the celebrations um, or uh, school settings or um, how um, a war can disrupt um, a community or, um, you know, genocide, op, for example, the other poem, um, you know, a genocide can happen perpetrated by your neighbor. Right? Um, and based on uh, whatever number of things, but this is your neighbor, someone who knows you and who still fires the gun. Um, so, you know, the, a community that comes together and a community that, that shatters. Um, I think that is a, is a big um, theme. Um, I talk a lot about um, becoming and, and family <laughs> and ancestor and spirit um, as well. Um, and I use a lot of song as a vehicle um, for that work um, because, because I think that there's a, a lot of um, power within connection of, of music. <laughs> How old is he? Having a lot of fun um, running his, his truck there. And I think that that's totally a, a great example of like my connection with family of like, yeah, my son comes in. He's just yeah. playing oh, with yeah. his toys. And all right, watching mommy talk to somebody who he doesn't know. In Australia. Like, in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's great. And do you, um, like there's lots of ways that we can talk about, um, even creative ways that we can express trauma or politics yeah. or how do you think poetry does it in its way and, and why, I mean, we talked about why you chose fiction or poetry, but why poetry to tell these stories like uh, personally I think it's the medium you know I yeah, think yeah. I want to what do you think and why does it work for you because some of these things are hard I mean yeah. a lot of them are hard yeah yeah yeah, yeah the poem um you know so we as human beings our our history is one of orality right um the sharing of of history through storytelling um, through song, through the poem, 
this is how we're hardwired um, in, in community connection. The, the poem is, is the unit of breath and breath is what connects us, um, connects our spirits, connects us um, physically to one another and to the world, right? Um, and so I think that the poem as a, as, as a container, as a unit of breath is perfect for um, really digging deep into um, mystery as well as trauma and healing and, and um, emotional resonance and um, vibrancy because it is that, that unit of breath. It's so core to who we are. Um, and it doesn't, the, the poem can, can be a work of, of creation in that it not only um, tells through narrative, but it creates through the metaphor a, a portal a magical portal through which we are able to feel and and heal and connect most viscerally to what is happening. Um, and we don't need the connective language to take us along the way. It's it's here, and it and it um, because again the poem is a unit of breath. It comes into our bodies, and it is an embodied understanding that may be very separate from our own lived experience and yet it becomes a part of. Um, and it's the work of the body and it is the work of the, of the mind. Um, neuroscience tells us, right, that um, fiction, reading fiction is almost, um, it activates some of the same spaces within the brain that doing the action does, right? Um, so we, we, in that imaginative space, we are so um, um, invigorated that we live it within our minds. And so I would add that the poem does that work too. And it, it activates the, the, the mind. And it also, because it is a unit of breath invades or not invades in a, in a, in a insidious way, but like um, uh, percolates, um, comes into the body. So, yeah. And would you say that, like, sometimes I think about, you know, sometimes I run an open mic night and people, I, I always say, if you want to read in your mother tongue, yeah. that's okay because we will get it somehow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you feel that? I mean, you also go into different language. Which languages yeah. do you also write in? Yeah, so I, I speak Spanish, so, so I'll, I'll bring in some Spanish. Um, I am learning Italian. I have not written anything in Italian yet. Um, my... my uh, uh, father in love, he uh, uh, often will push me like, translate this. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's your son. <laughs> I will read it. Um, but you're right. Uh, I, I did this reading years ago in Paris at the series called Paris Lit Up. And everyone was encouraged to do exactly that, to, to read the poem in whatever language um, was their mother tongue, is, is core to their being. And there are definitely things that I was like, I wish I understood all the intricacies. And yet I feel, still feel like I am carried in, at, at the very least, an emotional connection, a visceral connection to what this poet is, is sharing with us. Um, and, and that's like incredibly beautiful to also be in this space of vulnerability, to say, I don't need to know every single word. I, I, I can release the analytical part of me and just be. And that is like an incredible, a, a great gift of um, the reader um, and the, as well as the audience member of like being in a moment of just being and truly um, connecting through, through word that way.
All right, let's do another poem. You choose yeah. one. You choose one. And just tell me where it's from so I can just note that down. Which book? You know, is it, okay to, is it okay to read a new poem? Oh, yeah. I'm, anything you want. Okay. So I'm going to read um, The Only Co Color since it's a new poem. hasn't been published anywhere. Ooh. So, hey. Um, <laughs> and especially in reference to my son. So there's an epigraph. We've been here before, whether it's Tamira Rice or Trayvon Martin, said Benjamin Krupp, an attorney for Arbery's father. When they kill our children, they then try to assassinate their character. And I know they're going to do that with Ahmaud Arbery. Verde, 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 every color is verde. And I think on Federico Garcia Lorca, how I read this poem to him days old and nearly weightless his whole body less than six pounds on my chest. And now he stands a wild octopus boy on a chair reaching for the markers to draw one of the cards. He says, I always drive. Verde, verde, he says, though the uncapped tool streams orange. And his father says he knows what the best color is. I say, naranja. He has to know his colors and go into a diatribe about school, not being behind. It is not about school. He is my son. And so the box awaits, a check mark of abuses woven into his identity. He won't ever be able to just be the creative child who says verde, verde, verde for all the colors and is glorified for how his mind stretches divergent. Will he? My husband does not know that the box can be a casket. And each day we must fight for it not to be. Ahmad ran on a street lined with green leaves. Lorca wrote a poem. They shot him too, so bright. I just want my son to know his colors and live. Thank we you. talk a lot about, yeah, thank you for, for listening. Yeah, we talk a lot about colors in this house and it's definitely something I, I think about. actually about um and I feel this very strongly about that it's all connected that the yeah. connections the nature climate everything if you we can't separate you know yeah. I mean I yeah. just and I yeah and I again poetry as a connection mm -hmm. you know yeah. poetry yeah. as a way to explain the things that we can't necessarily explain this with usual language mm -hmm. you know um, yeah a word next to a word, you yeah. know, and all of a sudden, oh. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember who it was. I want to say it was Cedar Psycho. I took this workshop. It was definitely in my MFA, but I want to say it was him um, who, who was like that you need to write into the strangeness um, and, and really push into that space of, of um, because that's where the true revelation, that's where the, the, um, the core of something really lives. Um, and so oftentimes in my own writing, uh, I will say, um, I, I will do things like um, drop my whole manuscript into a, uh, 
thing of Wordle, um, like a frequency indicator where the most frequently used words become really, really big and the least frequency. Uh, yeah, it's a really good technique. I, I oh tell everybody, God. like, drop your whole manuscript in there. Because what it does is, is it helps you to see your patterns, right? It helps you to see that you're like, um, you're wedded perhaps too, too closely to one thing. Like I, um, as a, in my first book, I said maggots a lot. I didn't realize it until somebody else read my work and was like, why was I so fascinated with maggots? Who knows? I don't know. But like, um, and most recently, I'm mo really, really obsessed with the word body. Anything around the body, I'm very obsessed with. I can even sense that even in our conversation. Um, but it, that kind of awareness always prompts me to go back to those words and like, what is the strangeness that I'm trying to get into here? And that I'm, I'm just putting into its own little box with this one word. Let me, let me blow up the box. <laughs> like, what's, yeah. what's there? So yeah, writing into the strangeness. Oh, I like that. Uh, and that makes me think also, I want to ask you about your actual uh, mise-en-scene for writing. Where do you write? How do you write? What do you write um, with? Uh, I want to say that I write at my my lovely, very long writer's table with the, now it has a, a whiteboard paper on it and I write down my deadlines there. I want to say that I write there um, and that I'm looking at the mandala that, that my husband brought from Nepal, which is this incredibly sacred text and looking out my window that ain't how I write <laughs> I write on the futon after the kids are asleep I probably watched um a few episodes of whatever obsessive like um series that I'm trying to get through um uh, for a while it was Lucifer now it's girlfriends mm -hmm. like <laughs> so I probably watched a few of those episodes and then I've said okay it's time to write it's like 1 a.m and I'm going to sit um, with my legs crossed on my little futon while my daughter is sleeping, watching over her so that she doesn't wake up. Um, and I might get a good hour in there. And usually, especially if I'm working on a novel right now, if it's a novel, it's like, um, I'll get to 757 words or something like that. I'm like, Raina, you cannot stop until you get to a thousand because you, you, I know you want to stop because you're bored now. Like, just, just keep writing and find something that's exciting for you in this story. Um, because there's so many things that are exciting within the novel, but like, at least for me, as I'm writing this novel, it's like, uh, I've thought through a lot of what's going to happen. I just need to write it down. And that feels sometimes um, weighted. But then when I push through, I always have this new discovery of like, I never knew that that was going to happen to this character. That's amazing. I never knew that the, the, this part of Alexandria existed. Now I do because I've done all this research to write three lines. <laughs> yeah, so that's where I write. That's cool. And are you writing? Now I'm going to get down to the nitty gritty. Are you writing on a computer, on your phone, pen and paper? What are you doing? Yeah, I wish I could say that I write on a pen and paper. <laughs> a pencil. I, I, or a pencil even. No, I'm, I'm a, definitely a computer person. I, like when I used to ride trains, um, that just for me like opened up uh, me for like handwriting things. And yes, things got choppy and all that, but I really just loved that um, practice on trains. Um, 
but now that I'm, you know, as we, as many of us are, um, who have the privilege to be home, right, and, and working from home, um, I, I write from home, and so I, I don't have that movement, so I'm typing away, type away. And do you have any rituals that you need to do, any? Um, I really do need quiet, um, and I like to write in the evening. I don't really, um, especially like that after midnight, I'm a night owl, um, which is not usually great with <laughs> work and education, but I'm a natural night owl. So that, like, that 12 to 4 a.m. is like really great writing time for me. Um, not so great when your kids wake up at five, but, <laughs> but my, my husband and I kind of tag team. He, he's an early bird, so um, he goes to bed early. He um, supports the kids in the, in the morning. Um, but yeah, that 12 to, to four is really great. I like to watch the sun come up, um, and rituals, not really. Um, if I, if my house feels a little funky, I, and like, if it, it feels like it's just gotta, I don't know if everybody has a, a similar practice where it just like the vibe seems to shift. Like it feels like your house is haunted. Um, that I will do like a whole saging of my whole house or it's incense of all those candles. There's probably some, some blessed salt. There's, there's some holy water. It's, it's everywhere, right? It's just it's me taking over um, to the point that my, my husband has been known to come home from, from uh, work and be like, who had a bad dream? What, what happened? What, what happened here? I came home one day or he came home one day and the house was like phased out of stick. And, uh, and he was like, what, what's, what's going on? I was like, well, my sister, she had this bad dream and this happened. And then suddenly, and he was like, why can't she dream about her own house? Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about another, like another two poems? Maybe? Yeah. I'm just That's seeing funny. which ones I've bookmarked yeah. myself. And I, and I was very curious about Joker. Uh-huh. Why you wrote oh, yeah, that? I haven't read that one in a while. Yeah, let's read that one. I haven't read that one in a while. And because um, anyway, we can discuss that. But yeah. I, I was, um, I haven't seen the one with, with um, with Heath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too upset. <laughs> yeah, I, I could, I hear that. I hear that. He was great at it though. He's <laughs> incredible. Um, yeah, Joker with the epigraph um, from NPR. The challenge of the role wasn't lost on Jack Nicholson. When told of Ledger's death, the actor's immediate response was, I warned him. A comic book, you say? A killer with a deck of cards, only one face, but a thousand demented eyes. Didn't he know that every comic book villain is an impressed demon, an evil spirit traveling on light and paint? Each artist siphons other world. The largest wavelength pool is red. Easy to see crimson blood, scarlet lips, dusted poppy of jester's clown, all those colors set down with the spirits that rode them to make a haunting creature, twisted, insane. He took it on like a mask, thinking that he could take it off at any time. Night terrors shook the sweat from him. He paced the floors and sought release and shoot, him, shoot you up and bring you down medicines. The Joker wouldn't be shook, wouldn't quit playing with his mouth. He found the mask clung, became his face. He saw the colors, 
the full color spectrum, Twilight Lord, he answered, but he was warned. Yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah, I, was, I, I remember reading that article and a, a number of, of my pieces and, and those two books, Sombra and Boogeyman Dawn, reference um, different newspaper articles. Um, and I am always interested in the, in the larger story, right, um, of what's happening in that small um, clip, um, that piece. That, that same book has um, pieces from um, a shooting um, at an Amish school uh, that happened in 2006. I remember the year because I was at um, an artist re uh, residency in Montana when it happened and I'm from Philadelphia. So, um, you know, Pennsylvania, Dutch, like Irish, uh, uh, Irish uh, Amish country. Um, so when that happened, I was like, yo, like if the Amish aren't safe, then nobody is safe. And, you know, that was, for me, the the shooting that I most remember, and then after that, there were just so many more, and increasingly more in schools. Um, and yeah, so uh, I do um, a lot of of responding to the world in some way. We're gonna have to go soon, but yeah. is there anything? Is there anything else you'd like to read? Like anything that you? Oh, let's see. Um, let's see if there's a fun one. I'm so very. Oh yeah, I I think that one. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, it's just there's a little um, piece from a little. Um, section from cabaret the song maybe this time yeah so um it's called maybe it's in sombra this location maybe this time i'll be lucky maybe this time he'll stay maybe this time for the first time love won't hurry away and maybe when I kiss his lips, honey will coil and the caverns of my mouth buzz with a sweetness that comes from traveling on air, trusting that somewhere there will be the stuff up in goldening. Maybe when I grace his beard, tremulous to feel a petal gruff the root will root at the nub, thrill me to giggling like a child running through the thrush magic of a lavender field in full bloom. And maybe, when I nuzzle his hair as he rests his head at my breast, the coconut oil perfume will transport us into beachside languor, where even in stillness there is the cool clarity of breeze, blow, breath. And maybe, just maybe, he'll remain fiery to panting, as inexhaustible as sun, suns do cool, stars fail disappear with a wink, galactic fireflies in the distance, bearers of a thousand names are long dead before carrying one. Nothing lasts forever, but a moment, a maybe, that seems to extend to yes. Mm. 
You've been listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast, today with Miriam Hechtman and guest Raina J. Leon. A special thank you to Jessica Chapnick Khan for her song Precious and to Peter Brimage for the gorgeous logo.